Welcome to the Double K Super Show. I'm Chris Karam, a.k.a. Chris Karam. I'm Mark Kozlowski, a.k.a. Kozlowski Mark. Very clever. We are here to discuss the life and music of one of the greatest guitar players of all time. Of course, I'm talking about Edward Van Halen, who uh, sadly passed away on October 6th uh, of this year. Well, last month, actually. And what I want to... Before we get into you know our discussion, I want to ask you one question, Mark. What would the '80s have been like if Eddie Van Halen had never come into the picture? It would have been an entire decade of Devo and Human League and Funky Town, a whole lot of dance beats, a whole lot of synths, not a whole lot of guitar. You think about how many bands, especially by like the mid to late '80s, who were imitating Eddie to some degree. I mean, just, you know, finger tapping, fast playing, um, you know, mad arpeggios up and down the fretboard. There were a lot of imitators, but nobody quite did it like Eddie did. Well, Eddie Van Halen came along at a time when imitating Jimi Hendrix and Jimmy Page was rapidly becoming old hat. It was being played out and a new style was needed if rock and roll music as we know it as guitar-centric music was going to survive, it needed a whole new formula, and that's exactly what Eddie Van Halen provided. Oh, you aren't kidding. I mean, I read something once, and I forget who said this, but this person or this critic said, Eddie Van Halen may have been listening to Clapton, but he was hearing Hendrix. And I think there's a similarity to Hendrix in that what Jimi Hendrix was to the late 60s and the early 70s Eddie Van Halen was to the late 70s and pretty much all of the 80s as far as his his influence and his style kind of reinvigorating the, the um, rock music in general. Well, that entire 80s, and we don't want to give him too much blame for this, but the entire 80s heavy metal scene from hair metal all the way up to power metal pretty much owes its existence to Eddie Van Halen. Without Eddie Van Halen, you don't have... Randy Rhodes, you don't have Nuno Betancourt or Vito Parada or any of those guys. No, I mean, Van Halen, when you think about it, when that came out in 1978, 42 years ago, you know, they were really bucking the trends. I mean, disco was pretty much reaching its apogee. Punk was there in the mix. New Wave was on the horizon. It was starting to come into the mix. And rock bands were pretty much dead. I mean, Kiss you know, was doing pretty well, all things considered. Led Zeppelin had their own niche, but, you know, Grand Funk was gone. The Almond Brothers were gone. I mean, rock and roll was just in the doldrums. And all of a sudden, here comes this shot, this this jolt of energy from this Dutch guitar wizard. And I, you know, everyone's going, who is this guy? And, you know, you listen to that first Van Halen album, it still holds up. It's still got power. I mean, the whole band is great. You know, Roth has a unique vocal style and, you know, onstage presence. Alex is an excellent drummer. Michael Anthony plays a great bass and sings those, you know, great backing vocals. But, you know, let's be let's be honest here. Eddie's guitar playing is the axle on which this whole thing revolves. Oh, absolutely. And Van Halen was a pivotal group because they, as you say, they did come along in an era when rock and roll was stagnating heavenly, heavily, you know, and you had challenges from punk on the one hand, uh, new wave was coming in, disco ruled the roost, 
people were getting sick of Kiss, uh, Aerosmith were basically on the verge of imploding, and a new approach was needed. Van Halen combined the energy and the raucous nature of punk. They were sloppy and raw at the same time that they were incredibly intricate and professional. And that was a mix that was absolutely unique in 1978 and to a large degree still is. Nobody else has really pulled that off since. No, I mean, in fact, they even had a song on that first album called Atomic Punk. And, you know, they may not have been a punk band, but David Lee Roth, in his own way, was was definitely a punk. He definitely had that arrogance. And, you know, you were talking about bands that were imploding. Well, you know, best example of that is their first major tour they were opening in uh, 78 or 79 on the 10th anniversary tour and you were witnessing uh, a great band sabbath falling apart just barely keeping it together you know with drugs and alcohol and everything with these young upstarts from california van halen just wiping the floor with them even ozzy said that when he saw how good van halen was and how they were you know kicking sabbath's ass he knew that Sabbath's days were numbered. And, you know, as we all know, 7980, Sabbath pretty much imploded or split up into two. And, uh, you know, you had, uh, and of course, Eddie would just go on stage every night and probably melted a few heads in that audience and those audiences on that tour. Oh, yeah, there was a definite change in the guard. And there was a definite change to that, that hard rock and heavy metal personified. The earlier groups, you know, Judas Priest and, and Black Sabbath especially, were very heavy. They were very serious. It was very doom and gloom. It was a very, let's face it, the audience was largely a sausage fest. <laughs> Van Halen completely changed that. They brought in a good time party attitude. David Lee Roth was the party master. Eddie Van Halen was the master, of, you know, the musical director. Van Halen changed the mood of the music, and they pretty much set the tone for the way that hard rock would proceed throughout the 80s. So, yeah, definitely a changing of the guard. Well, not only did they bring a new sound with Eddie's guitar, I mean, they also brought in an, like an attitude, and it's largely due to Roth, that they didn't take themselves too seriously. They weren't, afa- they weren't afraid to clown around or goof around and you know i mean especially if you saw some of their later videos they brought like a party hardy kind of thing to rock and roll whereas a lot of the rock bands that were around at that time were you know taking themselves a little too seriously and van halen wasn't afraid to bring in like a sunny california vibe to it like say hey let's have some fun and i think that really set the tone for you know their career and like i said spawning a army of imitators throughout the 80s they definitely did i mean number one there's a huge difference between you know electric funeral and take your whiskey home i mean the attitude the gulf between the two attitudes is immense van halen popularized hard rock music and made it um shall we say girl friendly all of a sudden you know david lee roth was a sex symbol in a way that no previous hard rock front man had really been. And Eddie Van Halen set a whole new standard for up-and-coming guitar players to follow. Oh, yeah. I mean, they were definitely a study in contrast. I mean, you had Eddie, who was the 
the pure serious musician who just wanted to play and shred his guitar every night and Roth who was kind of like this uh, equal parts singer and lounge lizard you know in a hard rock context you know a lot of people give bands like Judas Priest and um, Iron Maiden credit for like the resurgence of heavy metal or hard rock but I think Van Halen was equally as um, equally part of that. They, I, I wouldn't, you know, class Van Halen as heavy metal, although some people have. They're more like hard rock, but they also have a, they've always had a pop side to them. And I think that's one of the things that was most endearing about them is they weren't afraid to have, you know, shimmering pop harmonies with Michael Anthony really providing that high, sweet voice. And like I said, you know, Roth was the class clown, master of ceremonies, you know, hey, let's have a good time. Maybe not the greatest voice in a technical sense, but certainly had a unique tone and it suited the music. And I think, you know, Roth was able to, t- to take Eddie's guitar riffs and, you know, transform them into songs. And, uh, you know, they were able to play off that image for of basically a bunch of you know, California goofballs for many years. They absolutely defined the M- the MTV era, and they set the stage for every, like, you know, sunset strip, poofy hair, glam metal band that followed. They absolutely set the template for that while still remaining somewhat apart from it. Yeah, it's for all their imitators and all the bands that definitely had a Van Halen influence, they were the innovators. You know, like I said before, I think... Eddie was to the 70s, well, more the 80s, what Hendrix was to like the 70s in terms of just having such a unique style and a point of view that, you know, nobody has sounded like either one of them before or since. Many have tried to imitate, many have been influenced, but find me a guitar player who can do Eddie Van Halen as good as he does. I defy you. You can't. No, but... The closest thing would be someone like Randy Rhodes, but even he had a unique style that was very influenced by Eddie, but not to the point of being, you know, generic or offensive. But that brings me to my next point. Pretty much anybody who came onto the scene after the debut of Eddie Van Halen would credit him as an influence or would be very kind and, and what's the word I'm looking for, charitable in their description. However, that doesn't quite hold true for quite a few of the people who were on the scene before Eddie Van Halen. Um, one of them, of course, being a certain David Crosby. Oh, you had to bring up Cross, huh? <laughs> yeah, it's – well, Crosby, I mean, you know, obviously he was heading in a downward spiral due to his own self-induced drug and alcohol you know, lifestyle. Yeah, he he could have chosen his words a little bit better when he was asked about Eddie. Even if he had just offered a generic, oh, it's, it's sad that he died. He was a talented guy. Even if you know you don't like someone, you don't you don't go putting them down when they when they die. I mean, you know, I mean, I know Crosby is known for being kind of he says what he what's on his mind and he doesn't censor himself. But the, you know, time and place. I think what's interesting about that is. You know, this is, and I hate to bring this generic overused term up, but this is kind of an exemplary okay boomer moment. Yeah, it's unfortunate because, you know, when I think fans like us and all the fans, you know, we're we're dealing with a loss of someone 
you know, whose music we've grown up with, who's had an impact on our lives, who's, you know, it's a soundtrack. Van Halen, especially the, the Roth era, uh, that's, you know, that's my high school soundtrack music. I mean, if I had to put together a soundtrack album uh, for my high school years, a lot of the songs would be Van Halen songs. I mean, you know, Women and Children First, Fair Warning. I mean, uh, in 1984 came out the year I graduated, and that was an album that you know, was huge. And if you had MTV, which we'd finally gotten by that point, uh, jump was on so much that I, I'm not joking with you, Mark. I could literally, if I heard the song on the radio, if I was playing it, I could visualize the video frame by frame in my head. That's how much that video was on that and thriller. You know, I, I, I swear that's them and maybe Duran Duran. I swear that's all MTV aired back in 1984. Purple Rain and Madonna. That was a little later. I'm talking like earlier in the year. Because Van Halen, 1984 came out in January of 84. Yeah, that is one of Van Halen's two diamond albums. Ten million copies each. That one in the debut. And it's very easy to see why that is. Because as you say, those videos are iconic. As soon as you say jump, you can picture David Lee Roth on that on that bungee cord swinging through the air doing the drop kicks. Even that video, I mean, the the one thing about the video that's so great is that it's a very basic video. It's just a performance clip. There's no conceptual footage. There's no dialogue. There's no acting. But they captured the essence of Van Halen in that video. And in fact, I don't remember who said this, but someone from another band came up to Roth and said, hey, who directed that video, you know, for Jump? We want to get that guy. Because we did, you know, and as I understand it, well, of course, Roth was being Roth, but he said something to the effect of the biggest thing in the budget was the beer. That's absolutely understandable because it is basically a one or two camera setup. It's very generic. It's straight up the band doing what the band does and doing exactly what they did on stage. It just captured the ambience just by being there in the background. And as you say, you know, the interplay between Roth doing what Roth does and Eddie Van Halen doing what he does and Michael Anthony singing the backups. All he had to do was just point the camera and click. Well, you know, the funny thing is, is that it's no secret that Eddie and Dave never really got along. I don't think they were ever really best buddies, but there's no denying that those two, you know, didn't have, they had a a chemistry, a creative chemistry, you know, even on stage when, you know, they were playing together, it's like Roth would be strutting and Eddie would be, you know, flailing away on the guitar. But, I, you know, there are moments where you can tell, I think even between the two of them, where they were having a moment where they were enjoying themselves. I can't I can't believe that, you know, to be in the band for over a decade together, it was all bad. I mean, I mean, you know, towards the end it was because of uh, drugs and egos and excess. But I, you know, Roth... It was a combination that worked. That whole band, I mean, there's the chemistry, you know, between them, especially, I mean, obviously, you know, typically in a, in a you have a rhythm section where the bass player and the drummer lock in. But in this case, it's Van Halen and they locked in because they were brothers and they were kind of bonded as kids, especially when they came to this country when Eddie was a kid, because they didn't speak English. They were bullied. They were probably, you know, bigoted people probably called them names. So they had to bond together. So it's kind of no no wonder that when they formed a band that they just had that kind of psychic connection. It is very noticeable that 
the rhythm section on a Van Halen album is primarily composed of Eddie's riffs and Alex's drums. The bass is there, of course, and Michael Anthony's backing vocals are there. But you don't really think of Van Halen as a bass-anchored group. It really is Eddie with the brown sound providing the bottom in, in the majority of cases. Oh, most definitely. And I mean, Eddie just, you know, playing, whether he's playing rhythm or he's, you know, flailing away doing a, a lead, you know, it, it's true. I mean, I think Eddie once said something like, Alex and I are sort of like the subsonic foundation that this band is built on. And that was always the case up until the very end, you know, whether it was on, stu- you know, studio recordings or live albums, you know, those two were just you know, connected at the hip, so to speak. And whether, you know, obviously there were changes in personnel, lead singers over the years, um, but those two were always, you know, in sync together. Uh, You know, Michael Anthony kind of just off on his side of the stage, you know, providing, you know, uh, support uh, rhythmically and, you know, vocally. But yeah, like I said, you know, Eddie, Eddie and Alex had that connection and Eddie just, the band was named Van Halen for a reason. It absolutely was, and I have to admit at this point that I never quite got, I never got to see the classic Van Halen. I had several opportunities. Um, I ended up seeing Queen instead on one occasion, and I, and I ended up seeing Kiss instead on another occasion. You, on the other hand, got to see Van Halen. However, it was during the Van Hagar era. Yeah, I never, I never got to see him with Roth, and in fact, I'm really regretting that on the last tour I didn't go see them. But I think the tickets were very high, and I just didn't feel that they were worth spending, you know, buck fifty on. But yeah, I mean, if we want to jump ahead a little bit, I mean, you know, we're not really following any kind of a pattern here, as is our thing. I went to see Van Halen in 1986 on the 5150 tour, which was, of course, the first album and tour with Sammy Hagar. Um, I think it was the fourth night that they played the Worcester Centrum. It's not not the Centrum anymore. It's like the, you know, the, the bank or something, whatever now. But <clears throat> excuse me. Yeah, it was August of 86 and it was a Friday night and it was just amazing, you know. And then you, know, you come to the part in the show where Eddie just does his 10 minute, 15 minute solo. And, you know, it's no myth. The guy could play like a mother. And he did that night. I'll never forget it. You know, the whole show was great. You know, I know we kind of disagree on the merits or demerits of the same Hager area. And that's I don't want to get into that debate. Not this show anyway, but I think we will have to debate that in a future show. But he played great. The whole band was great. And one of the highlights of the evening was when um, Michael Anthony came out for, for the encore dressed in a Boston Celtics uniform. And that was one of the years that we had just won the championship over Los Angeles. So, you know, the crowd predictably went nuts and rightfully so. But uh, I, I will say, you know, I've seen Van Halen seven times, uh, six times with Sammy and one time with Gary Sharon. And I got to say that, that, you know, he played great all the times I saw him, but that first show, it was just, it was just something he, he really played as he played his ass off you know, he played all the riffs that you wanted to hear, you know, did little bits of Mean Street and Cathedral. And and he started off with the uh, piece of music that would eventually be, become known as 316 a few years later. Well, he definitely, my, my understanding is that he definitely played as if he had something to prove, which is exactly what the case was. 
they were coming off, you know, having parted with Roth very acrimoniously, having a huge mudslinging press battle, and now he's got to come back in the arena and show that Van Halen still has relevance and a place in the world. So I, my guess is that he would definitely play on fire because, you know, his very livelihood and his reputation and his career depended on it. And that makes for some very interesting music, I would say. Well, the other thing, too, was that, you know, he had I mean, it's very seldom that a band that's at the peak of their career or their, has a commercial breakthrough uh, parts ways with the singer, brings on another one, especially in this case an established singer like Sammy Hagar, who at that point, you know, was doing fairly well himself as a solo artist. But he and Eddie had a had a chemistry of their own, and I think that really fueled that album and, that, and of course, that live show. And you're right. They were playing like a band that had something to prove because they did. They had to show, you know, the audience. And 5150 ended up being a huge hit. It sold, I believe it sold to date, 5 million copies in the U.S., and, you know, it was a different chemistry, obviously. It was a different feel, a different, you know, sound. And what's interesting, I just want to get into this a little bit, is that, you know, a lot of people accuse Sammy Hagar of turning Van Halen into a pop band. But uh, I think if you really pay close attention to Van Halen's career, they've always had a pop side. And 1984 was really the beginning of them uh, doing more keyboard-oriented material and more pop songs. So that would have happened even if uh, Roth had stayed, it might not have been as dramatic a change. It may, it is still, you know, stayed rooted in some of the rock that they had done, but Van Halen was changing. And I think that was part of the reason why Roth probably left. I think the biggest change that you notice with 5150 is the sudden maturity of the music. Obviously Roth is the eternal teenager. Sammy is not, is not quite that he's, the frat boy, he's the army barracks guy. He's, you know, the good, he's the good living, good timing adult rather than the teenager that Roth was. So, yeah, a certain amount of adjustment, a certain amount of maturity suddenly enters the music, which a lot of people mistake for, you know, just complete selling out. I don't think that's the case, but there was definitely a, a sort of an attitude curve that had to be adjusted to. Well, Eddie was, you know, he was evolving as a musician, and he'd had training originally in piano. Uh, I believe he even won some competitions as a child in California. But he was writing pop music. He was, exper- you know, he was bringing in more keyboards and more synths. And I think Sammy just had a voice that maybe lent itself more to um, more accessible pop treatments. Uh, if you will. I mean, Sammy Hagar himself even had incorporated some keyboards into his music for, you know, Your Love is Driving Me Crazy. And, I mean, he just had a big breakthrough himself with uh, VOA and I Can't Drive 55. So, you know, he had really, he almost had something to lose if Van Halen and him didn't work out or if people didn't accept it. But, you know, like I said, Eddie was evolving, Eddie was changing, and I think... Sammy coming along when he did was the universe just saying, okay, you need to work with this guy now. And, you know, they wrote that for 10 years and some very successful albums and tours. Well, the, the, the later Van Halen era, the Van Hagar era, is kind of like the culmination of the, era, of the AOR sound. 
I mean, you have the switch from Ted Templeman to, um, I believe it was Mick Jones, the foreigner guy that produced 5150. And you have the band, largely through Eddie's influence, taking on a very sort of classic AOR sound, which is different from the hard rock sound of, of the Roth years. It is more mature, it's more complex, it's more accessible, but also more developed. So it's it's definitely a shift toward the AOR um, arena, so to speak. It was definitely more radio friendly. I mean, that first single, "Why Can't This Be Love," you know, was almost tailor made. And I'm sure, you know, I know Mick Jones had somewhat of an influence. I think, from what I understand, he came in later on in the process, mainly to sort of help them finish it up and do the mixing and stuff. But yeah, I mean, stuff like that, "Dreams," were songs that. Roth wouldn't probably couldn't have he obviously couldn't have sang and probably wouldn't have sung, and it definitely was more polished and more accessible. But that's just the way Eddie was going. I mean, and you know Van Halen, like I said, he's the axis upon which that band revolved. And if Eddie wants to write with keyboards and write pop songs, he's going to write pop songs with keyboards. And if he wants to do guitar stuff, he's going to do guitar stuff. So moving ahead to, I guess. We need to discuss the last 20 years that have been sort of, I guess you could call it a, a, a relative anticlimax of a sort. You know, the years when people were wondering, are they going to reunite with Roth? Are they getting back with Sammy? Are they going to have a completely new singer? Obviously, there was the Van Halen 3 fiasco, the less said about the better. I actually own that album for two days. <laughs> I still own it, but I haven't listened to it in probably 20 years or more i mean it's definitely it, it ranks up there in t- probably the top 10 most disappointing records i've ever bought and you know that's all that need be said i mean you could do a show on van halen 3 but why would you want to i mean who would want to listen to a show about van halen 3 that's dedicated to a one particular listener of this show and he knows who he is <laughs> Yeah, it definitely is the uh, the Star Wars holiday special of of Van Van Halen albums. It's not even that good. <laughs> it really isn't. There is no B. Arthur cameo. It would have helped. But the interesting thing is, why do you suppose that was? Why was the last twenty years suddenly just a complete, almost a complete squib, with, with the exception of the different kind of truth album? Which itself, that itself is sort of a complex issue, isn't it? Yeah, well, I think what happened was that, according to Gary Sharon, that towards the end of his time in the band, Eddie had started drinking again. And I think, you know, obviously between um, drinking and drugs and cancer, I mean, he had tongue cancer about 20 years ago, around this time. And, you know, his marriage was kind of unraveling. And I think, I think Eddie at that point had just lost his mojo and was retreating into, you know, alcohol and, and just isolation, really. I mean, it was to the point where they hadn't done anything for a couple of years, and Michael Anthony's wife was going crazy because Michael Anthony was getting antsy. So, you know, he called Sammy up, and Sammy says, hey, come on, you know, why don't you come on tour with us? And, you know, he went to the guy, to the brothers, and said, look, I, you know, Sammy offered me to go on tour, and Eddie said something like, what do you want to do that for? But ultimately agreed, and, you know, we know what happened there, but... Van Halen wasn't happening. In fact, you know, they, there was that infamous tour that Sammy and Dave did together, which I never saw, but 
you know, as we both know, it did not end well. Oh, yeah, the classic Sam and Dave, complete with the um, the introduction on the Howard Stern show, where they proceeded to snipe back and forth for like three hours, and that's pretty much what the tour consisted of. Right, and, you know, not I think... Not a good look for either. No, no. And I think the problem with, you know, with that was they, I think, I don't know if it was Sammy or Dave, but both of them kind of said they were kind of doing that to kind of nudge the brothers into doing something, because about four or five years... And then, then you know, in nineteen in two thousand four, they got back with Sammy for the best of both worlds greatest hits album, double greatest hits, with three new Sammy songs, which were just kind of so so by Van Hagar standards. And then, of course, they did that tour, which was I you know, which was a disaster. Uh, they basically had to stay at separate hotels, ride on separate bu- tour buses, and go on to because Eddie was just. He wasn't at his best at the, during that time. No, there was also, of course, the contentious reunion with Roth, which I believe slightly came afterwards. The, um, the me, my, me, my, what was that song, Me, Wise Magic? Yeah, that was Me, Wise Magic. That was from the 1996 Greatest Hits. That was the first attempt at a reunion right after Sammy left in 96. Yeah, they had that... Um, the appearance at the award show where they basically like argued right there on the stage. Well, actually it was back, it was backstage, but if you watch, if you watch the footage now, you you watch Eddie particular Roth is in his element. He's having a ball. He's, he's happy. He's happy to be back. He's saying, Hey, it's we're back. And you know, Eddie, you can see like the body language of Eddie. He's just not having any of it. And I always take issue with that because if you, are not planning to get back with Dave, or if you're not sure, you shouldn't be coming on stage with him giving away an award, especially when you have when you're when you've got a new greatest hits album. Because in my estimation, in my point of view, they were telling the audience that we're back together. That you know we're going to have a reunion, and I, I think everybody assumed that Van Halen was going to do a reunion tour at that point. It would have been a smart move, and it would have been a timely move. It would have put them straight back at the top because they were still coming off. At that point, multi-platinum albums with, with Sammy, they were still very much in the spotlight. Grunge, I don't think grunge put a dent in Van Halen's career the same way that it killed off all the generic hair metal groups. Because Van Halen were never truly of that Sunset Strip brigade to begin with. I think they would have survived had they been able to stay active. Yeah, their records were still hitting number one on the charts. They were selling like two or three million copies per. They could still go on on tour. Yeah, they were impervious to grunge. You know, by that point, Roth had fallen from favor. I mean, he put out a couple of records in the early 90s that really didn't really do much to bolster his career. And in fact, the most infamous thing he was known for was a pot bust in New York's Central Park in 93 or 94. So... You know, I think Roth needed needed Van Halen, perhaps a little more than they needed him. But as we all know, that reunion didn't happen for like another decade or so. Although there was an attempt to do so uh, in the early 2000s, but they just weren't able to make it happen. Which, fast, which enables us to fast forward to the different kind of truth album, which allegedly is, is fashioned from demos left over from the early 1970s before the era of the first album even 
Well, I've got some bootlegs, and I and I know for a fact that some of those songs are on the demos are on the demo CDs that I have. Uh, as I understand it, most, if not all, of that CD, I think maybe only one or two songs were written new for it. You know, I think they were going back into the vaults and uh, digging up some old stuff. They were trying to recreate the classic sound. And after, you know, Van Halen 3, I think it was a wise move to do something that was a little more closer to what they were uh, known for in the beginning. But I feel like, to a certain degree, I like the album. I think it's a good record. But if you know, it's a, to me, it's a contrived attempt to go back to the beginning. And if you're going to do that, you should have Michael Anthony on bass and background vocals. Nothing against Wolfgang. He's a good musician. But the whole, the production of that album was very loud and very overdriven. And yeah, like I said, it's a good record. And it's certainly a good record to go out on, which is obviously, it's going to be Van Halen's uh, swan song. But, you know, like I said, it's a complex kind of issue. The songs have Van Halen trademark on them, but you can tell that they're very much, you know, as you say, very early era songs. They're not developed the way that the songs in the first two or three albums were, and the production kind of causes it to not sound like a Van Halen album. Well, it was interesting. The producer of that album, I believe his name is John Shanks, he was on a podcast and he was talking about the making of this album. Apparently, he said that at any point during the recording of this album, it could have fallen apart. It could have just not happened. Let's, you know, let's be honest. We know that Dave and Eddie never got along. And in fact, I, I, I suspect that during the making of a different kind of truth, they probably weren't even in the studio at the same time. I guess as Eddie probably, the other guys came in, did their parts, and Roth probably came in on his own and to cut the lead vocals. But, you know, they were able to get at least one more album done. It was the first, I mean, you think about it, 2012 was when that album came out. And that was the first album with Roth in 28 years. I mean, it took them that long to get David Lee Roth back on, I mean, not the, the songs on the greatest hits volume one from 96 notwithstanding, but it took him that long to get him back in the fold. Yeah. I mean, overall the album is a decent enough, as you say, swan song. It definitely could have benefited from Ted Templeman being in the studio. There's no question about that. The only problem is that Eddie and Ted Templeman were not on speaking terms. No. In fact, that's part of the reason why he built the uh, his home studio, 5150, because he wanted to have more control over the music. And uh, I think Ted didn't do himself any favors or endear himself to Eddie when he decided to produce David Lee Roth's Eat Him and Smile instead of 5150. Uh, he did come back for, for unlawful carnal knowledge, but more towards the end because i guess uh, andy johns who was the producer on that record had uh, accidentally erased sammy's vocals on a track or he messed something up so sammy didn't trust him so sammy they brought in um ted tillman i guess ted tillman kind of organized things a bit and kind of got them to finish up things and get the album done because andy johns and eddie were just drinking buddies and you know, just spending a year in the studio and not really being anywhere near finished. So, you know, Templeman was, in Eddie's words, he was a very organized guy. And that's probably why, you know, those first six albums with uh, him as a producer worked so well. He certainly knew how to capture Eddie's guitar. He definitely did. And he let he did it 
very simply by letting the band play. My understanding is that he basically would set up a couple mics in the studio, push record, and as long as the ambience in the room was right and the tracks were balanced in the correct fashion, he could basically just let the band play. Yeah, I mean, I think I read in an interview with Eddie, you know, that there were very few overdubs on that first Van Halen album. And in fact, when he went to go do an overdub, he didn't know how to do it. You know, he didn't understand how the process worked. But yeah, I believe on those early Van Halen records, it was just basically set the guys up, mic them, get the balances right, and let them go. I mean, and those early albums, especially the first two, I would say, definitely have that kind of freewheeling feel. And, you know, Eddie, he's just playing the guitar like, you know, stone skipping across a lake just fierce and frenetic so where do you think now that we've discussed eddie van halen's legacy his place in his own time how do you think that the legacy of eddie van halen shapes up in the future well i mean you look at people like hendrix you know people are still listening to him all these years later even new even kids who are you know young are picking up on what he's doing. So I don't think there's any reason why Eddie Van Halen won't linger. I mean, certainly now uh, Van Halen's music is selling because of his recent passing, which, you know, happens when any major musician passes. But I think, you know, I think it's going to depend also on what they release in the future. I know that there's talk about Alex and Wolfgang Van Halen going into the vaults. Supposedly there's, uh, gazillions of hours of tapes of unreleased music. So, you know, if they pick some good material, maybe some unreleased songs, some unreleased live tracks, whatever, there's no reason why Eddie Van Halen can't, his legacy won't linger on for a few more decades. I mean, he's certainly going to have uh, an impact or a legacy as long as people are in our age group are still around. You know, we're still going to be around for a while, I hope. <laughs> I think that Eddie Van Halen is one of the very few flat-out classic rock musicians whose legacy may actually have longevity behind beyond that of rock music itself. Um, Eddie Van Halen, his riffs are some of the most sampled riffs in hip-hop music. When mm. rap and hip-hop artists go to like sample like guitar riffs, Eddie Van Halen is kind of their go-to guy. So whether or not audiences in the year 2070 when you and I will most likely be gone and rock and roll will most likely be gone. I think that there's a very good chance that Eddie Van Halen riffs and little bits of solos in the form of samples may still be, you know, topping the charts. Well, yeah, I mean, I'll never forget in the late 80s when uh, that song Wild Thing by Tone Loke came out and the first thing you hear is that that opening drum fill from uh, Jamie's crying and the dent 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 and I'm like wait a minute that's Van Halen and that was the first instance I can't I can't think of any others offhand but that was definitely one where it was so obvious I mean yeah you're right if say two no I would say it's Tupac he's not around obviously um if Kanye West were to suddenly sample an Eddie riff and build something on that. You know, it, it would bring his music to a new audience and maybe some kid will listen to it and go, hey, who, you know, who's that guitar player? You're right. I mean, it could very well last beyond just being classic rock. It could very well be sampled or but I'd like to I'd like to think that to some degree 
that classic rock radio or what's going to pass for that in the future will keep Van Halen's legacy alive. It'll obviously be playing the same four or five songs over and over, but you know, you don't want to see it go away either. No, and I think his legacy, much like Jimi Hendrix's, much like Led Zeppelin, much like John Lennon, I think his his legacy is quite secure for, you know, many, many decades to come. So to wrap this up, I would say Eddie Van Halen was a flawed human being, but a very, very, very talented human being. He definitely left his mark on an entire genre of music and influenced just multi-generations of players. Um, a good guy, as it happens. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, you know, I never I never knew him personally, so the thing that matters most to me is, like you say, is the music. And he, he came along, like I said before, when rock and roll was in the doldrums and disco was ruling the roost, and, you know, basically, okay, listen to this, and transformed music electric guitar eddie i remember there was an interview with eddie probably like in 80 81 one of those guitar magazines or musician magazines where eddie said that frank zappa walked up to him and said thank you for reinventing the electric guitar that's what he did he reinvented it he basically did it his way and pointed everybody in a new direction and said you know follow me and a lot of people did follow him i mean do you think Ingve Momstein would have. I'm not saying Ingve was influenced by Eddie, but do you think Eddie? I mean, Ingve would have been signed or coveted by a record label if not for the fact that he was a fast, flashy guitar player. No, absolutely not. And people like Steve Vai and and Joe Satriani definitely owe their careers to the existence of Eddie Van Halen. There's no question about that. Eddie Van Halen defined and trademarked an entire new archetype the solo virtuoso guitarist oh yeah i mean all of a sudden you know you've got people like you know like you said steve Vai and joe satriani releasing these guitar you know in, in i think instrumental records i don't know if you i don't think either one of them sang or had a vocalist but even if they did the primary focus was the guitar and all of a sudden you had a guitar, slew of guitarists coming out of nowhere with records and you know bands built around them you know, and Eddie was leading the way. I mean, Eddie just, you know, all he had to do was just plug in, flail away, you know, flash that, you know, goofy grin of his. And whether it was Sammy or Dave, it didn't matter. I mean, people still came to the shows, bought the albums and, you know, picked up guitars. And, that, and if anything, you know, if it inspired somebody to pick up a guitar, that's that's a cool thing. Oh, Absolutely. So to wrap up, we say goodbye to Eddie Van Halen. Secure in the knowledge that his legacy is secure. He definitely won't be forgotten. And as long as classic rock exists, and possibly even beyond the lifetime of classic rock, I think that his legacy is absolutely bound to live on. Oh, without a doubt. You know, I, I knew when we started this show that we were going to do a Van Halen show at some point, whether it be an album or just talk about the band in general. And I, and I suspect we'll we'll probably revisit Van Halen as a band or Eddie at some point, but it's kind of it's too bad it had to be because of this. But at the same time, I felt you know if we're kind of a music show, and we're both fans of Eddie Van Halen, and I felt we should acknowledge the debt you know our, our debt to him as fans and you know his his influence. So you know Eddie you know thanks a lot 
you know, I hope you're wherever you ended up in the universe, rock and roll heaven or whatever, you're you're having a good time. And, uh, you know, like I, like you say, he's not going to be forgotten anytime soon. And, you know, we'll be playing his records until we're old and fidgety and snapping at each other over, you know, our uh, pudding or something like like that. Oh, yeah. Eddie, we love you. Now take your whiskey home. That's for sure. Good, good conversation on a great talk. And speaking of um, shows, I wanted to bring up something. We are now not only on Podomatic, but we are also on Apple Podcasts. Can you believe that, Mark? Oh, yeah. We're, we're bad. We're nationwide. And we've also gotten our first five-star review. It's our only review so far on Apple uh, Podcasts. And I'm going to read it because it's very brief. It's from, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Sockment B, uh, October 23rd. And it says, if you geek out on talking about rock, these guys know their stuff. What higher praise can can there be than that, Mark? Oh, absolutely. And we thank you very much, Sockment. And uh, anybody listening to this, if you're listening to this on Apple, even if you're not, we would appreciate it if you'd give us a review and let us know what you think, good, bad, or whatever. And, you know, because I think reviews push the, sh- the profile of the show more and give us more visibility. So, I mean, we're, we're not going to be able to take over the podcast universe on our own. We, you know, we're going to need some help, guys. No, absolutely. I mean, let's face it, people. Your time ain't going to waste itself. <laughs> so true. And on that note, we'll bid you all a fond adieu for now. Uh, I'm Chris Karam, a.k.a. Chris Karam. I am Mark Konzorowski. AKA. We'll see you next time on the Double K Super Show. Good night, America.